Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. Good evening, everybody. I think we actually have this figured out. Looks like we are all set to go. <clears throat> and mamma mia, have we got a show for you tonight. There is all kinds of things on the table. Uh, I got to tell you, though, I have never done crowds very well. And I, from what I understand, today was rather quiet. But my wife and I had to go to Costco. There was a few little you know, stuff, you know, life is made up of stuff, right? You got to go and uh, deal with the stuff. So what happened was we went to Costco and I, like I said, shopping is not my thing. I don't like shopping. Um, there's all kinds of things I would rather do. I'd rather have my teeth pulled with another cane than go shopping. Well, maybe not, but it's getting close to that. Anyway, so we go in there and there's people everywhere. People everywhere. So I thought, okay, all I really want is I want a little, uh, I got my cell phone here. There it is. Best looking cell phone I own. Doesn't mean much to you, but there you are. Anyway, I like to use it when I'm, you know, driving about during the day uh, in the car. So if I don't know where I'm going, I can punch in Google Maps or use my Bluetooth and navigate via Google Maps. And I like to be able to see the screen, with a, and I don't want to have to pick the thing up. But if I put it in the coffee cup holder and I turn to the left or right, it tends to fall out. So I thought, okay, I'll go in and get a little clamp kind of thing, and I'll put it on the dash. So I went and got a, a, a sale order for it. I gave it to my wife without explanation of what I was doing. And to make a long story short, it's still there, and I'm here. So it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Now, on tonight's show... Let's see, because people are asking, what are the topics? Uh, you have a dirty boot, a plug-in that is dirty. Oh, okay, I'm thinking, how the heck does he know my boots are clean or not? So let's just uh, let's just do a quick little pull and push here. There we go. I don't know if that helped you out, uh, Doug, but there, we'll give that a try. All right, anyway, so on the show tonight, I'll just run down the topics I have in no particular order. Oh. <sighs> Winston Churchill's chicken speech. Yeah, that's a great one, but I can't play it yet. I'll be able to play that next week, though. Uh, let's see. Seriously, though, uh, starting, in, like I said, in no particular order, uh, the American College of Pediatrics reaches a decision. 
transgenderism of children is child abuse. Oh, yes, we're going to talk about that one. Uh, now, there was a young man down in, where was he? Uh, in Tennessee, who, carry, who had a concealed weapons permit and stopped a guy from blasting a church and its occupants to pieces. Uh, so there's that's an interesting little story. Uh, we have the... Uh, oh, this is going to drive me mad. We have been... Uh, the UN wants us to apologize for black enslavement in Canada. I'm sorry, but the UN can go kiss my... Yeah, you get the point. Uh, then there's the schools that were too hot. We can talk about that. We're going to talk about that. And I got to just refresh pages as I go along here. Uh, let's see. Uh, liberal tax reforms to be debated in the Senate committee, which senators say is not made up of nitwits. Well, there. <laughs> I don't know about that. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. And the Liberals have decided they're spending $5.5 million on ads to help us understand why them spending billions of dollars to give us a 25% break for one year on our power bills is a good idea. Good luck with that. All right. Then we have, uh, let's see. Oh, the story of the VC. Yeah, there's a, a story about uh, out of Saskatchewan. There's a soldier. His, da- his name was Major David Curry. And he won the VC for closing the fillets gap. Now, if you don't know anything about it, I posted the story of the of that action um, on my Facebook page. But in a nutshell, this guy was leading a unit of tanks and some infantry and closed the last escape route for about 300,000 Germans that were trying to flee as the Allies were um, moving into Western Europe after D-Day. And the Germans were retreating. Well, they fell into this. They were being encircled by the Americans on the right and the Canadians on the left. Now, at the time, in the, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but just this is such a remarkable story. Most of the Canadian army had dysentery. Now, if, if you don't know what dysentery is, take a moment and go look it up. It's not very pleasant. It's, it's so, how do we put it, nasty. That's the word we need. Nasty. It's constant diarrhea. You're dehydrated. You're weak as a kitten. You're feeling sick. You're just, you're not yourself. So the point, the point is that you have um, all these people out there who are just, you know, would normally be in bed at home in bed fighting a war. Okay. And they get criticized by the Americans because they're not moving fast enough. But the Americans come up with this saying, better a hard shoulder than an exposed neck or something like that, because they they didn't want to stick their necks out uh, to try to reach the Canadians faster. So it was up to us to go out and put an end to this, you know, close this gap. Now, the troops that they were fighting were desperate. They were terrified of, um, you know, of being captured uh, and, and or killed in the process. And 300,000 of them were trying to flee out of this ever-narrowing gap. So Major Curry, he gets his, his, his tanks and his men across the last uh, outlet from the fillet's pocket, and he closes it. And he holds it for 36 hours against repeated uh, uh, counterattacks by the Germans. He knocks out, uh, uh, let's see, 
Let's see if we can find the list. He knocks out all kinds of 40 vehicles. Uh, he, he takes out a Tiger tank all by himself. Uh, he kills 300 Germans, takes 500 prisoners, uh, destroys about 12 uh, 88 millimeter cannons. Just like the guy's a one-man army, him and his troops. And for that, he wins the Victoria Cross. Now, he went on to serve in Canada uh, in the House of Commons as Sergeant-at-Arms from 1960 until 1978. And he passed away in Owen Sound at 73 years old. And that's where he is interred at the moment. Uh, well, unless unless anyone wants to dig him up, that's where he's buried. But a uh, re- remarkable, remarkable man. So this medal comes up in the um, in the course of conversation. And the story out of Alberta, or out of Alberta, the story out of... Um, live video has stopped. There was an error. Oh, well, let's... Uh, Try that again. Hang on, folks. I'll bring that right back. Uh, go back one. Do, do. Come on. Leave this page. Okay, I got to launch this again. Stay on this page. There we are. Now we'll go there. Talking to myself. Live video. Go live. There we are. All right. Okay. Back again. Post. All right. Now, I don't know why that did that. So you probably missed most of what I just said. (sighs) There are times I'm telling you, just don't pay to get out of bed. Okay, um, let's see. All right, Kevin, uh, welcome back, and I'm sure there'll be others following real quick. Uh, I was just sharing with people the story of the closing the fillets gap. The story is on my Facebook page if you want to read it. Uh, but Major Curry uh, was leading a um, um, a unit of tanks and supporting infantry, closed the fillets gap, uh, stopped the escape of 300,000 German soldiers, and um, who are trying to get away from advancing our Allied armies in um, in the Normandy region of France as after D-Day, and uh, most of the army was sick with dysentery and had a, a, all kinds of you know they were fighting the very best troops that Hitler had in Western Europe. The SS he had the Hitler Youth, and the saying about them was they were they looked like angels but fought like devils, and just you know they were just. Everything they could throw at the Canadians to keep the gap open, they did. And we stopped them. So he wins the Victoria Cross for that. So the question becomes, now that he passed away uh, in 1987, I think, at the age of 73, he served after the war as a uh, sergeant-at-arms in the House of Commons from 1960 through to 1978. Um, So he had a very long and distinguished career, and he is a real Canadian hero. So with that said, the question now becomes, what do we do when his family, or do we do anything? And there's been a lot of banter back and forth on Facebook about this. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this question. And the question is this. Do we, um, when somebody has a medal for valor, I'm not talking about 
campaign medals. Now, just for those of you who don't know the difference between a campaign medal and a medal for, you know, action under fire, if you want to call it that, uh, a campaign medal is one that everybody who enters a theater of operations gets. It's a, it's, I don't mean to trivialize it, don't get me wrong, but it's like a participation ribbon at field day at school. Okay, everybody gets one. Now, they all made the same voluntary choice, like they all volunteered. They all went knowing what the risks were. They entered a theater of war, and there's a certain inherent risk in that and a certain amount of courage in that. But it's not the same thing as somebody who does what Major Curry did, killing, like, as an example, uh, Major David Curry uh, knocked a tiger tank out all by himself. Now, if you don't know about anything about German armor, during World War II, the Tiger was the most feared German tank on the battlefield. Okay, um, <clears throat> they were just they punch holes through pretty much anything the Allies had at the time. So now it, it, the question becomes, at least in my mind, because he was given the Victoria Cross. So I'm talking about the Victoria Cross, the Distinguished Service Order, the Distinguished Flying Medal, uh, or the Distinguished um, Flying Cross. There's a whole handful of medals for gallantry that are what I'm thinking of. These I almost call I want to call them national treasures, but they don't belong. They they belong to the public in the sense that Canadians won them on the battlefield while they were serving the public, but they don't belong to the public because the individual was awarded them as recognition for their heroism. Now, in the case of Major Curry's medal, the family who lives in Saskatchewan sold his collection of medals, including the Victoria Cross, for about $660,000 Canadian. And I'm not sitting here in judgment of the people who did the selling, okay? I don't know what their financial situation is. Maybe that money is something they desperately needed. So I'm not going to sit here and say, no, you can't, all right? Because what, who am I to tell them that? But on the other side of the coin, does it make sense that, and I'm going to be careful how I phrase this because I'm not, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, um, how do I put it? Well, here's, here's my thinking on this, and I'm, I'm hoping that you'll have some input on this. Number one, you have a situation where a metal like that comes up, uh, you know, they, they want to sell it. Do you think, now it, even when I say this, I know this is, it would be very difficult to do because how much is one of these metals worth? Well, only what the market will bear, first of all. That's the first answer. But how does the government know what that is? But the, to finish the sentence, would there be, would, it, would you, do you think that the government should have first right of refusal to purchase, not take, but purchase? these kinds of medals from the families. Um, when those families decide to divest themselves of these um, artifacts, is about the best word I can think of for it. Or do you think maybe, as one person suggested, and I, th I can't remember the name of the individual, uh, but somebody out there suggested, well, why don't they do what the Smithsonian does? And that is work out a deal with the Smithsonian so that, in, in this case, it would be the appropriate, because the National War Museum is not the only museum that might have might be able to lay claim to this. Okay, there's the, the regimental museums, there's 
each province has museums and things like that. There's a bunch of different places these metals could conceivably end up in. The problem as I see that is these institutions would not have the kind of money available to per other than perhaps the war museum. And even then you're getting into government territory. It's not a privately run. See, I think, I, I don't know about the Smithsonian, whether it's privately run or publicly funded, I don't know. But what really drives the question is the idea that we have these, these hard-fought-for, and believe me, the Victoria Cross is the single hardest medal for valor to win on the planet. They do not give these things out very, you know, they are not like candy. You know, if you ever see anybody wearing a Victoria Cross, whoever is wearing it is one of a very lucky few who actually live to receive it. Only one in 10 people who are awarded the Victoria Cross are alive when they pin it on their chest. The rest of them are issued posthumously. So it's not something to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a great honor to be in the presence of a VC winner because they have done something. And it's not just like a, a participation medal. So that's why I'm, when I see these medals come up like this, and I, I, I don't know what it takes to win one. I'm, you know, I have no, I, as far as I know, I'll never win a medal, certainly not the Victoria Cross, uh, you know, for, for these kinds of things, partly because I don't qualify, partly because I, you know, I just don't see myself ever in that situation. But the point is that those who do, our national heroes. So when their medals go on display, see, I in a perfect world, we put them in, in an institution like the War Museum or Rideau Hall or in regimental museums where people could come with a plaque and a picture and people can read about the heroism that put that medal in that case. Now, with all that said, I also understand, like I said before, that the family ultimately owns these medals and that they have to be able to... Um, <clears throat> Um, they have to be able to make the final call because in this family's case in Saskatchewan, you know, if, if you're in a financial situation where that $660,000 would get you out of debt, would, you know, maybe pay off a mortgage, and there's nobody in the family who has any interest in receiving these medals as a continued family heirloom, for us to sit in judgment, I, I think, is a mistake. So... I just, it just pains me to see these kinds of medals disappear into obscurity because we didn't, you know, we weren't, um, we don't have a mechanism to be able to properly compensate the family for this because how do you put a price on these things? So I just thought I'd throw that out there and see what you guys had to say about it. Um, so if you want to make some comments here on Facebook, you can you can even you can even call 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And uh, I think it's time to take a quick little break. When we come back, we'll get into some more stuff because there's plenty ahead, believe me. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspect distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. 
Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. All right. Now, what else do we have? Oh, my good Lord. Let me just see what else tickles my fancy to get into. Uh, Let's see. Let's kill that one story. I don't know why it's doing that either. Oh, let's do this Gary Ritz thing. All right. Now, Gary Ritz is a conservative MP, as many of you are already aware. Well, he's probably, he's, this story is from the Huffington Post, so it's kind of like a story in the Toronto Star. Uh, You know, it tends to lean to the left just a little bit. Wait, no, it tends to lean to the left a lot. So anyway, um, they're just... (laughs) Okay, he got, remember when last week we talked about him, he got in trouble for calling our climate minister a climate Barbie. And we had some fun with that because, look, if that kind of thing bothers you, then you have no business being in the political kitchen. For crying out loud, how, how, of all the things a man could call a woman, a climate Barbie is something you get offended at? Really? I just blows my mind. I mean, like, have we got onion onion skin for, you know, for a hide now? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, apparently he's in trouble again because of something he said. And I looked at the comment. Let me just bring it back up here. I had it a second ago. Uh, let's see. Here it is. Here's what he's in trouble for now. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, here's the tweet. This is why I love Twitter. Uh, actually, I don't. I think Twitter is a complete waste of time because it's you, you get you can too easily get in trouble with it because um, it's too short. You only got 140 characters, and in order to try to explain yourself, sometimes so people get the right context, they don't often uh, get that uh, the context right in something that's that brief. So here's what he says: Is Sharia law a cultural exemption that the liberals are demanding in NAFTA? Now, okay, I don't know the answer. Did That did not sound like all that unreasonable a question. Consider uh, motion M103, okay? That's one of the things that the, that the liberals are doing. Uh, we all know how uh, Justin Trudeau feels about Islam and about all that stuff, okay? He is more than happy... He bends over backwards for that particular demographic. But when it comes to other people who are in just as desperate a need as as, uh, uh, Islamic refugees are, he turns a blind eye. So I think it wasn't really all that out of line for Gary to ask that question. But because he's a conservative and because he's not speaking from the narrative and because of all the other stuff... um, Oh, have they? We'll see. That tells you. Somebody says they've doubled the number of characters. Uh, thanks, Warren. I didn't know that. So it's now, what's that, 280? All right. That's better, but it's still not a lot. Um, so anyway, poor Mr. Ritz, two weeks in a row, he's dragged through a knothole. 
And for what? Uh, <laughs> Here's a comment from uh, the Heritage Minister. I'm surprised that Mr. Ritz hasn't learned his lesson about making inflammatory comments. Well, you know something, um, Climate Barbie? His comments aren't inflammatory. What's inflammatory is your reaction to them. To get all bent out of shape and weep your crocodile tears over being called Climate Barbie or being asked a question like, are you guys actually going to exempt Sharia law? Because there's a cultural exemption in NAFTA. So he's asking a pertinent question. And, of course, they're all having a cow. Frankly, I couldn't care less what they have to say because I think he's asking a a reasonable, I won't say a good question, but a reasonable one, and certainly not something that warrants this kind of response. It just makes me lose my, oh, man. I don't want to say lose my mind because I keep saying that all the time. Hmm. Anyway, so that's a little piece on that. Let me skip down the list here and we'll see what else we got. Oh, yes, I forgot. Venezuela. All right, now, look, it's not only do we have Rocket Man, the little grease ball, deciding he wants to, you know, threatening that he wants to take on the United States. Now you've got Mendoza down in in Venezuela. (laughs) Okay, now, keep this in mind. I went and I looked up the Venezuelan military. (laughs) The Canadian military, for all of its... Uh, you know, professionalism and so on, is not exactly what I call a huge military, all right? There's lots of holes, like we don't have rocket-launching weapons platforms for land-based operations. Uh, We don't have attack helicopters. There's a bunch of things that we don't have, all right? But we could take these guys on and beat them quite handily. But (laughs) Maduro, I called him Mendoza. I'm sorry, it's Maduro. Let me read you this article from Newsweek. It starts out this way. Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro called on his nation's military leaders Tuesday to prepare for for, for war against the U.S. US. Days after Trump's administration blamed Venezuelan officials for, from entering the nation or banned Venezuelan officials from entering the nation. We have been shamelessly threatened by the most criminal empire that ever existed. And we have the obligation to prepare ourselves to guarantee peace. I didn't know that Stalin was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, these people are incredible. Okay. Said Maduro, Maduro, who wore a green uniform and a military hat as he spoke with his army top brass during a military exercise involving tanks and missiles. Now, <laughs> listen to this. He says, we need to have rifles, missiles, and well-oiled tanks at the ready. <laughs> who? What national leader with any kind of brains at all says, and well-oiled tanks? They might be from 1921, but doggone it, they're not rusty because they're well-oiled. Oh, man. <laughs> this, you know what? They, he has a, now, being serious for a moment, he does have a huge problem. He's got desertions with his own military because guess what? It's not just the civilians that are starving. They... Colombia has has arrested Venezuelan soldiers coming over the border begging for food. So it's not like he's got a robust military that can, you know, might not be, uh, might not be equal to the uh, to the United States man to man, but at least it would be a real thorny uh, nut to crack 
you know, would be would, would uh, be an expensive target to go after. It's just, are you serious? <laughs> and then he has the gall. Remember who this guy is, okay? Maduro is now the president of Venezuela. The people are starving. They do not even have basic medical supplies. They can't get toilet paper. They're eating animals out of their zoos. I mean, it's just crazy the kind of things that are going on in Venezuela. And this guy has the gall to call the United States the greatest criminal organization. He's enacting a crime against his own people, a crime against humanity. It's almost like genocide on his own people. And he wants to blame. Oh, my God. So anyway, keep that in mind. The future of humanity cannot be the world of illegal sanctions of economic persecution. No, (laughs) you're doing that to your own people. You don't have to worry about the Americans. It's unlikely Maduro has the manpower to stand up to the U.S., blah, 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 blah. But I just I watched that and I said, okay, so apparently it's it's legal to smoke dope down there, too. But just. It's enough to drive you. You know, stories like that make my my job so much more fun because. What kind of lunatic actually would come out and say that and expect to be taken seriously? That's what's funny. I mean, if he was doing a parody, if he was doing a comic skit, why would any national leader do that? But just, you know, that would be more believable. That at least, you know, I don't know. It's just that you've got the greaseball on one side of the planet and this goof on the other side of the planet thinking, actually taking seriously, going to war with the world's greatest superpower. Right. At least in North Korea's case, not that I would ever want to see this happen, but at least they've got a nuclear button to press. You know, there is a certain amount of reality to their threat. But what is Venezuela going to do? You know, they have two whole submarines. Two whole submarines. (laughs) They wouldn't make it 25 miles out of port. Oh, man, I'm telling you what, it's enough to drive you. It, it, this kind of stuff just makes makes me makes me laugh. It's just fun, fun, fun. Okay, now let's go see. All right, now, there's a big story um, going on in the United States right now with these spoiled brat NHL players uh, defying Trump by kneeling during the national anthem. Now, look. There is a time and place for political um, protest. Nobody denies that. Nobody's trying to say these guys do not have the right to protest. But is a football field the right place? Keep in mind, they are protesting for political purposes. The head of the country that has produced more wealth than any other country in human history. It's the same country and the same system that made all these little children multimillionaires and gave them star status, has showered on them a life that would make King Solomon green with envy. I mean, think about what these players have at their fingertips. Some of these guys play for millions of dollars a year. I don't know what the top NFL player makes, but 
let's pick a number and say there's I'm sure there's guys out there making five million a year. Okay? So if their career lasts six years, that's thirty million dollars. That is so much more than the average person sitting in a stand makes. That is laughable. And then they come out and decide that their opinion is so important that they have to interrupt a game, that they have to make it known to all the people. Million, if you go to an NFL game, you're looking at 50,000, 60,000 people. Never mind the millions watching on TV, many of which who voted for the guy they're protesting. They think that they need to show that level of disrespect on a national stage. Look, if one of the players, and I couldn't name it, I'm really sitting here struggling trying to think of a um, of a, an NFL player. I, I really don't have much interest in the NFL till after the Grey Cup. And my Hamilton Tiger Cats won an amazing game against the BC Lions last week. Got to love it. They're in, they now are in playoff contention. <laughs> Three and nine, but they're in a playoff contention. But anyway, so you take one of these guys. Um, man, it's been so long. Well, let's say the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, whoever that is. You know he's making at least a couple of million a year, right? So he, if he wants to go and protest in Washington, D.C., that's certainly his right. He can certainly do that. No one is suggesting he can't. But I don't think kneeling down in the middle of Soldier Field is the place to do it. Now I know that's not the Soldier Field. I think it's the home of the San Francisco 49ers, I think, Soldier Field. Doesn't matter. Whatever whatever um, flat spot they play on, whatever they call it, that's not the place. It's People go there to get away from the politics. They want to be entertained. It is a game. It is a game. You don't go there to say, yeah, and by the way, all you Trump supporters are all a bunch of jerks, even though you're paying my salary. Think about this. If you were to walk up, if you're employed and you walk up to your boss and say, you know what? You're a jerk. You're really a jerk. I don't like you. The guy you bought the company from, he was a lot better boss. I liked him a lot better. How long do you think he'd stay employed? Now, the ratings for the NFL are down by 11%. And when you're going from 17 million people who watch it, down to 15 million people, which is about 11% drop, if I remember the story I read on it right. That's a lot of people you just pissed off. This, I think, can be equated to something called blowing your feet off or cutting your nose off to spite your face. When you're there to play football, play football. Keep your political opinions to yourself. This is no different than remember a few years ago when that young page up in the Senate walked down the middle of the red chamber holding up a cardboard sign that said, Stop Harper. That was inappropriate, too. She's not there to make political commentary. She's there to serve the senators, to make sure they get their job done as efficiently as humanly possible. That's what she's there for. Not to, If she wants to go and, wanted to go and protest, we have a lawn out in front of the Peace Tower for that, not the Red Chamber. So these people seem to think that any place, anytime, anywhere, by anybody, they can protest. But you can, but there's consequences. And I think the NFL is really going to suffer because of this. I don't think Trump's wrong when he says that people are going to, you know, there's going to be a backlash. That a lot of people are going to say, screw you. 
You make five, ten million dollars a year, and you think you're going to tell me the guy I voted for is an idiot? I'm sorry, there's an idiot here, but it isn't him, and it isn't me. And since there's only three people in this equation, that leaves you. So I certainly, I certainly, am going to be very interested to see how this pans out. But there's no room for this kind of nonsense on a professional sports field. There's no room. And the reason I brought it up, oh, that's right. The reason I brought it up was because now this is a story out of the Globe and Mail, and it's about (laughs) Sidney Crosby. Now, Sidney gets it, okay? He understands this. Halifax residents urged Sidney Crosby to turn down the White House visit. They won. The Pittsburgh Penguins won the Stanley Cup last year. We all know that. And they deserve to win. So, in the United States, when a professional league team wins, whether it's baseball, basketball, hockey, or football, they get an invitation to the White House. It's a tradition, and it does not matter who the president is. Now, Crosby understands this, but listen to this. A year after Halifax decided to consider naming a street after Sidney Crosby, in brackets, and I'm adding, something you should never do while the person is still alive— because you never know what's going to happen to them is in the future or what's going to be revealed about them later in the future. Isn't that right, O.J. Simpson? Close bracket. Back to the story. The hockey superstar suddenly finds himself embroiled in an ugly political mess that has some residents openly musing about rescinding the offer. It's no secret that the Pittsburgh Penguins captain has faced widespread criticism on social media for his decision to support the team's upcoming visit to the White House, but, ha- but disapproval has also percolated to the surface in his hometown, where Crosby is typically accorded godlike status. Soon after the Penguins accepted President Donald Trump's invitation to bring the Stanley Cup to Washington, D.C., Crosby called it a great honor for us to be invited there. Some Haligonians were calling for him to reject the offer. They asked Crosby to show unity with NFL players and other protesting Trump for criticizing the league's players for refusing to stand during the national anthem. All right. Crosby understands that it doesn't matter who the president is. This is a tradition. And to be invited to the White House is an honor, even if it was Obama, even if it was Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton. Who cares? The fact is, one of the perks of winning a national championship in the United States is a trip to the White House. There's more to the White House than the prime minister. The prime prime minister, yeah. There's more to the White House than the president. There's all the history. There's all the, you know, it, it's like being invited to Rideau Hall. It doesn't matter who the governor's general is. It doesn't matter who the prime minister is. The fact you got invited to Rideau Hall is an honor in and of itself because of the history of the place, because of the tradition that goes with it. And for the people of Halifax to slap that down and say, oh, no, we don't like that Trump guy, so you can't go in there. No, don't you do be doing that now. I thought the people in Nova Scotia had more brains than that. I'm a little disappointed in <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> yes, I understand that, Kevin. He's saying that the last Canadian team to go to win the Stanley Cup, the Habs didn't get an invite. That's because they're not, they're not American. They won it in Canada. At least that's the way I understand it. And besides, it doesn't that even makes it even more an honor. If the president is the one who decides whether to extend the invite or not, it, well, you know what? It's the same thing. It doesn't matter. 
The politics of the situation don't matter. What does matter is the fact that when when you get an invitation, if you got, let me put it to you this way, if you were to get a letter from the prime minister, no matter who it was, personally signed by him, congratulating you on something you did or a milestone you reached, would you throw it out or would you frame it? I know that even if it came from the boy king, because it happens so rarely, I would keep it. Now, would I hang it on the wall for everybody to see? I don't know. I might wait a few years after he's been booted from office, but I'm not going to let my own political personal feelings take away from the honor that comes from getting a letter from a sitting prime minister, no matter who it is. Because the, the it, it's the it's the... The rarity of the event. It's the fact that you got one at all. Now, I'd prefer one from Harper versus Justin Trudeau. There's no question about that. But I don't know that I would simply run Trudeau's through a shredder. Now, I know a lot of people going, oh, man, would I ever? I set the thing on fire. Fine. If you want to, that's that's up to you. But uh, it's the novelty of it. It's the, you know, in 60 years from now, when your kids see this, your grandkids see this, they're not going to know who Justin Trudeau was. Well, maybe they would. Who knows? Maybe they'd look at it and go, we're still paying for this. That might make sense. So anyway, I think that uh, um, I think that uh, Sidney Crosby has the right attitude, and the NFL players are nothing but a bunch of sucks. And they're sitting there flipping the bird, not only to the president, but to the millions of people who go to see their games who voted for him. That's the most salient point of the whole thing. All right, time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more right after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Ron Barr, General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. All right. Now that that's out of the way, let's get back to work. Okay. Now, there is a story I, I want to get into because this has been a hot topic lately in the last few months. And um, let's see... The headline is, American College of Pediatrics Reaches a Decision. Transgenderism of Children is Child Abuse. And they list eight reasons why it is. Now, i got to pull my little sticky note up here, because otherwise I will forget it. Now, I won't bother with the whole article, but I will read you the eight reasons why the Pediatrics Association feels that this, have I got the right group? 
American College of Pediatrics, uh, Pediatrics. That's the group that we're talking about. So these are professionals. These are clinical, you know, th this is um, the kind of people who deal with this stuff on a professional level. So this is uh, <clears throat> what they have to say should be listened to is what I'm truly trying to say here. Okay. Argument number one. And I have been saying this. Well, you know what I find refreshing about this? Is it backs up everything I've said about this for the whole thing. This is not something I wrote, although I could have. Uh, this is something a whole bunch of really smart doctors wrote. That doesn't make me smart because I just happen to use common sense. They've done research to back that up. Not because I said it. They were doing the research whether I said it or not. But here are the reasons. Number one. Human sexuality is an objective biological binary trait. XY and XX are genetic markers of health, not markers of disorder. Number two, no one is born with a gender. Everyone is born with a biological sex, gender, and awareness and sense of oneself as male or female is a sociological and psychological concept, not an objective biological one. Number three, a person's belief that he or she is something they are not is at best a sign of confused thinking when an otherwise healthy biological boy believes he's a girl or an otherwise healthy biological girl thinks she's a boy. <clears throat> an objective psychological problem exists that lies in the mind, not in the body, and should be treated as such. I've been saying that same thing for years. If you think you're a boy when you're a girl or a girl when you're a boy, the problem lies in the attic not in the cellar. It's a mental disorder. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. The problem lies in your mind. And you don't fix it by changing the plumbing. You know, if a car's got a blown engine, repainting it is going to make the thing work any better. Number four, puberty is not a disease and puberty-blocking hormones can be dangerous. Reversible or not, puberty-blocking hormones induce a state of disease the a state of disease, the absence of puberty, <clears throat> and inhibit growth and fertility in a previous, previously biological healthy child. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, as many as 98% of gender-confused boys and 88% of gender-confused girls eventually accept their biological sex after naturally passing through puberty. Number six, children who use puberty blockers to impersonate the opposite sex will require cross-sex hormones in late adolescence. Cross-sex hormones, testosterone, and estrogen are associated with dangerous health risks, including but not limited to high blood pressure, blood clots, stroke, and cancer. Number seven, and this is, you know, with all this um, stuff surrounding uh, teen suicide, this one really should smack you between the eyes. Rates of suicide are 20 times greater among adults who's, who use cross-sex hormones and undergo sex reassignment surgery. Even in Sweden, which is amongst the most LGBTQT affirmative countries. And the last one, number eight, conditioning children into believing a lifetime of chemical and surgical impersonation of the opposite sex is normal and healthful as child abuse or is child abuse. You know, I've been saying that and I, I don't mean to pat myself on the back. It's just so obvious. 
It doesn't. That's the thing. It doesn't take a pediatric uh, doctor to figure this out. Common sense tell you that, tells you this. And yet, how many times when anybody stands up and says stuff like this, do they get slapped down as you're intolerant, you're you're a homophobe, you're this or you're that? No, it's just it's, it's none of those things. Who wants to see a suicide rate 20 times higher than the normal population? Who wants to see pe- kids, you know, soaked in drugs that cause cancer, high blood pressure, blood clots? If this was anything else... There's no way that, look at the, ask yourself this question. Or would you, would you agree with me that this is more dangerous for long-term health of people than smoking? If you had to choose between your child smoking or your child going through transgender chemical treatment, which one do you think is worse? Well, I can tell you, at least in my opinion, I would have I would buy them the cigarettes if that was my choice. I'd buy them the lighter. I would light it for them rather than have them go through this. I think it's less dangerous. Because smoking you can always quit. Once you go down this dark path, there's no coming back. And that's what ma- that's the part I've never been able to wrap my mind around. It's got nothing to do with whether I think these people are human or whether they should have the same level of dignity or anything along that line. It's because I care about them that this is the case. Who would willingly see people be put through this stuff? Only the people who don't really care. Who could just shrug their shoulders, oh, well, too bad, they're circus, they're monkeys. But if it was their kids... You know, and you wonder why teenage suicide rates are so high. Well, if this is the case, if we don't ever tell them. I mean, look, growing up is, especially in your early years, it's all about experimentation, pushing the boundaries. Kids do it all the time. How far can I go before somebody says no? You know, and if nobody says no, can I go a little further? Can I go a little further? Can I go a little further? And if there's never any consequences, the kid will... Hey, man, I can do whatever I want. The danger is they'll hurt themselves, right? Either physically or psychologically. Because normally when we raise children, we do it in a way that says, okay, you can go this far, but don't cross that line. There will be consequences. And a good parent, if that child crosses that line, will inflict immediate and painful consequences to teach the child what happens when you cross that line. And the child, as much as they complain about it at the time, respects that. And it'll come back to you. And they will say, you know, Dad, you know, Mom, remember when? I am so glad now looking back on it because I was nothing but a half-baked twit when I was 15. And if I'd have done that, if you guys had let me do that, I shudder to think what my life would be like now. Now, they might not use exactly those kind of words, but that kind of an experience will happen. And they will grow in maturity and understanding under your guidance. That's the role of a parent. It's not to be a friend. It is to be someone who nurtures the next generation into rational human beings that can step out into the world and make their mark and take their place in a productive society. And that's what happens. This is the kind of thing when you allow this to happen. I couldn't agree with the Pediatrics Association more or the College of Pediatrics, I'm sorry, 
that this is actually child abuse because of what they expose their children to. It's just this is enough to drive you crazy. <sighs> Doug and I give you one too. <laughs> he says, I would be your sergeant with the 45 Tommy gun. <laughs> just remember who's on your side, right? Point it the right way. Anyway. All right, so I thought I'd share that with you because that this has been such a hot issue lately that when this organization, the American College of Pediatrics, comes out with something like this, you got to sit up and pay attention. This isn't just some redneck talk show host from Killaloo talking. This is, you know, a bunch of very highly skilled and trained physicians doing the talking. All right, now, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the UN, let's see if I can find it. I thought I had that. Story pulled up here somewhere. Liberal spending, yeah, Saskatchewan. I can kill that story. That's gone now. Uh, oh, yeah, there's the Boeing story. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, football players, yeah, football ratings off 11%. Yeah, okay. Uh, Newsweek. Oh, we did that one too. Here it is. Oh, no, that's not it. That's the U.S. wrong one. Okay, don't want that. Uh, is it here? Anyway, the whole st what I'm looking for is the story about the UN wanting Canada to apologize for black slavery. I saw that in just about... Actually, I posted that on Facebook, didn't I? So if I go down here far enough, I'll find it. Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, let me just scroll down a little bit. Um... They want us to apologize for black slavery, but and you know you know damn well that they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And now, of course, when I want it, I can't find it. So let me just click on that, and I'll scroll down. Yep, yep. Yeah, there's that story. I'm getting to it, really. Where are you? Liberal tax reforms, yeah. That's the metal story. Where the heck is it? Gary Ritz. That's here it is. I knew if I looked long enough, I'd find it. Okay. Now, this comes from the Daily Caller. All right. So here's the way the story reads. The United Nations Human Rights Council says Canada should apologize and pay reparations for slavery and other forms of anti-black racism. In a report released Monday, the UN advisory group stated history informs any black racism and racial stereotypes that are so deeply entrenched in institutions, policies, and practices that, ins that its institutional and systemic forms are either functionally normalized or rendered invisible, especially to the dominant group. Guess who that is? That's you and me. Now, I hit the roof when I saw that because I have, first of all, absolutely no, no, and I do mean no, use for the United Nations, and that didn't help any. But I decided to go, because I knew that Canada never really did have black slavery. Certainly, you know, there. I'm not going to say we never had slavery, but you got to go back a long way to find it. So here's just a little snippet of the history around that topic here in Canada. And this comes from, uh, let's see, Historic Canada is the website. All right. 
Let's see. In early Canada, the enslavement of African peoples was a legal instrument that helped fuel colonial economic enterprise. Enslavement was introduced by French colonists in New France in the early 1600s and lasted until it was abolished through the British North through throughout. I'm sorry, I can't read all of a sudden throughout British North America in 1834. During that two century period, Canada was involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Within the country's borders, people were bought, sold, and enslaved. Canada was further linked to the institution of enslavement through international trade. The country exchanged products such as salted cod and timber for slave-produced goods such as rum, molasses, and tobacco, sugar from slaveholding colonies in the Caribbean. Here's a little news flash. So did everybody else. That's just the way the world worked at the time. In the early 17th century, French colonizers in New France began the practice of chattel slavery. The bottom line here is when you get down to the part that actually matters, Here it starts about here. Some French colonists acquired enslaved black people through private sales, and some received indigenous and African slaves as gifts from indigenous allies. So it wasn't just... It wasn't just the white man that was involved in this. Our local in indigenous populations or, or uh, native uh, First Nations peoples were involved in it as well. But I don't think the U.N. is going to call them on the carpet for that. I don't think the U.N. is going to call the French on the carpet for that. The only group they're interested in chastising is the Anglo-White Saxons. That's who they're after here. And it's this kind of stuff... Man, I'm telling you, this is why I can't stand the United Nations. Because they take things so out of context. So anyway, out of an approximately 4,200 slaves in New France, at the peak of slavery, about 2,700 were indigenous. Excuse me. <coughs> uh, let's see. And were enslaved until 1873, and at least 1,443 were black uh, were black people who were enslaved between the late 1600s and 1831. So you're looking at, let's say, 1600 to 1800s, 200 years, right? 16, 17, 18. So 231 years. If you took 1443 and divided that by 231, what do you come up with, Mr. Calculator? Oh, I don't know. Let's press some buttons and see. We have uh, 1441, four, sorry, 43. Uh, 14, no, come on. I can't even use a calculator, right? 1443 divided by 231 equals, there was a total of 6.24 slaves per year in the whole colony. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not endorsing slavery. But first of all, it hasn't been, it was never a thing in Canada as we exist today, since Confederation. It was outlawed long before that. In 1834, it was outlawed. And even in the time period when it was allowed, and we're talking about black slaves now because that's who the U.N.'s talking about. They're not talking about indigenous slaves. They're talking about black ones. That when you average it out, the population, over the time period, you come up with 624 yeah, we need chastising for that. Why don't we look at the number of slaves traded within the African continent or in the Middle East, maybe? Why don't we look at the Islamic slave trade? They didn't care what race you were. They enslaved everybody. 
Do you realize the re- the reason that the U.S. Marine Corps was formed was to put an end to the Barbary pirates capturing Americans at sea and selling them into slavery? The Barbary pirates were Islamic. And yet I don't see anybody going to Saudi Arabia or to Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, Pakistan, <laughs> Pakistan, any of these. And, and, and I'll grant you that in, in Pakistan's case, uh, and in Iran's case, they weren't Islamic at the time. But if you go into the heart of it, right there in that um, that Middle Eastern core, right around Egypt and 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 um, Saudi Arabia and Yemen and uh, Nigeria, or not Nigeria, I'm trying to think of some of that northwest corner of Africa. If you go in there and look at the number of slaves that got traded there, I don't see the UN condemning any of those guys. It's that's another thing is that. The sink, this absolute mind-blowing hypocrisy. <sighs> now, okay, I am going to move on to. Uh, actually, I'm going to take a quick break here, and when I get back, we're going to dive into uh, Dear Rogers Canada Opinion Survey. No, we're not going to do that. Um, let's see. Oh, well, there's that. We've got a bunch of stuff yet to go. We're nowhere near done. Okay, uh, we'll take a break and be right back after this. So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one, but maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he could talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold and, and, and you'll be fine. night does not exist without advertisers so if you want to buy time you contact either myself jc at latenightcouncil.com or you can contact nick if you're more comfortable with him and of course i certainly understand that you can contact nick at latenightcouncil.com the ads are like really really cheap 
I mean, you're gonna you're gonna love them. Okay, you're, you're, we we've made them quite accessible. Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now back to Nick at Night. All right, got that taken care of. Put the kettle on to boil again, so I <laughs> forgot last time. All right, now there's a couple other things I want to get to here. Um, this one, we did the Halifax Residence one. Yeah, that was nonsense. Okay, the heat wave. You know, when I first read this story, I thought, okay, we're just being muffins again. We're just being snowflakes. <clears throat> and that's a story about what to do about classrooms that get too hot. Now, maybe I'm getting softer in my old age, but it occurred to me that while, you know how people my generation and older like to go, well, Junior, when I was your age, we used to walk barefoot uphill both ways through snowstorms to get to school, and boy, we were glad to get there. Uh, and then had to turn around and walk uphill home. You know, that kind of thing, right? How life was always harder, life was always more complicated, but you never see any of us going back to those ways. We like our air conditioning. We like our indoor plumbing. <laughs> we like the fact we don't have to write on wax tablets anymore. In the, the the whole thing I'm driving at here is, well, let me share you a little of the story if you're not aware of it. Unionized elementary school teachers in Ontario say this week's heat wave was ma has made conditions in many classrooms unbearable and is taking a toll on students who are stuck in schools without air conditioning. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario says the extreme temperatures affect children's ability to learn and can cause them health issues. The union is calling on the province to take steps to relieve the heat, which could include installing air conditioning systems or setting up cooling stations. All right, look, I guess what I was driving at is, in this case, I don't often do this, but in this case, I think the union's got a point. When it gets stifling hot in a stuffy room, it's hard to concentrate. There's no doubt about that. Now, I know that there's a lot of people out there who say, well, we didn't have air conditioning when I was a kid. Maybe not. But I have no doubt, if you had it, you would have wanted to use it. Just because we didn't have it as children doesn't mean we should deny our children that, that you know, benefit of technology. Air conditioning today is not the same thing as it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago when I was in school. So when I'm uh, talking about this, um, it's a situation where you have these kids trapped in this school and they have to sit there and study and they have to go through their courses, but it's hot. Some schools, some windows can be opened. They just can't do it. So you have um, a scenario where the teacher's trying to teach, kids are trying to concentrate, but they're not. They, they, I had one guy mention today while I was in, um, um, where was he, Bangladesh. That was it, Bangladesh, and said that, uh, you know, those kids are 35 degrees outside or 95 or 100 degrees, whatever it was. I said, well, the, if you live in that climate, you become acclimatized to it. So the heat, like if you lived in Florida, okay, Having a day that's 110, 
you just kind of get used to it. Now, a lot of people in Florida also have air conditioning. So it's a matter of, of the kind of uh, climate you live in. In Canada, you know, we don't get that hot. We don't really even get all that cold, at least not in this neck of the woods like we used to, which isn't a bad thing. Um, there was something else I wanted to get to, too. So that I just thought that if we have the ability to make it easier for our kids to learn, why wouldn't we? And considering the amount of money this government wastes, like $5.5 million on ads to tell you why they're such nice people to lower your hydro bill by 25% for a year. Yeah, you know, if they can waste that kind of money, can't they take some of that money and put it into a little bit of bricks and mortar and make sure these kids are at least comfortable? Would you want to work in an office where there's no air conditioning and it's like 90 degrees outside? Especially if you can't open the windows? So I'm not necessarily opposed to this. If we're going to have schools, um, then let's try to make them. uh, They don't have to be the Taj Mahals. But in today's world, it's like once you have technology, we could communicate using the Morse code, right? We could all have little sets and everybody learn Morse code. Why don't we do it anymore? Because there's a faster, more efficient way to do it. It's called the Internet. We don't need to do it that way anymore. Yes, it would be fun and nostalgic, and maybe some people want to, you know, do it that way as a as a hobby. Fine, knock yourself out. I don't care. Ham radio is another one. But if you've got the technology to make somebody's life easier, especially at a time when they're trying to learn, then do it. Like I, we bought a car this summer, partly because the car I had, or the car we, ha- the other car we have, does not have air conditioning. And when you drive around in a city all day like I do, then you're going to want to have air conditioning because you get it just wears you out not having it. And I know when I was a truck driver, believe me, air conditioning made a big difference. So I don't see any problem with that. And I think that the wind government needs to, well, they won't take this seriously because it doesn't really benefit them. So, you know, I know sometimes you feel like you're, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to say being in the wind, but that doesn't sound very nice on radio, does it? Anyhow, okay, there was another story I wanted to get into. Uh, Let's see. Liberal spending, heat wave. The story in the, I know there was one, I I know there's people on on Facebook who are screaming at me about uh, doing local stuff. So there's a story, and I, I actually, I hadn't pulled this up yet. Uh, just because uh, I hadn't pulled it up yet. But the uh, pop-up uh, drug injection. I'm just Googling it now. Injection sites, Ottawa. There's a story in the news about these uh, uh, city-run injection sites. Yeah, the one in Ottawa that I'm thinking of is the one that was illegally set up. And they asked the chief, what are you going to do about this? Said, well, well, we're waiting for, what did he say, council? And I don't mean council as in city council. Input or something. He indicated direction. That was the word he used. He wanted to use direction. Wait for direction. Direction, really? <laughs> Look, when you set up an unsupervised injection site, unsupervised and unregulated and there's... A couple of phrases that got bounced around. It means it's illegal. And you as the chief law enforcement officer of the city of Ottawa 
need to shut it down. You need to make arrests. You need to enforce the law. Wouldn't that be nice if we actually had somebody who enforced the law? Oh, man. This, this kind of stuff, you know, something, it doesn't really take that much to be able to. How hard, let me, let me put it to you. Maybe I'm, 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 I'm coming at this from the wrong angle. How difficult would it be to be the chief of police? Now, look, I'm not talking about the years of training or, you know, grunt work, but just from a law enforcement point of view, wouldn't one of the first things you do is pull all your deputy chiefs together and say, okay, we are going to enforce the law as, as it is written with no regard to person, uh, religion, or st- status in life. You know, we are going to be lady justice. We are going to be blind to anything except what we see before us at the scene. So if we pull up to a traffic accident and there's a member of parliament standing there and he's got liquor on his breath and there's an accident and some, then he's going to get blood tested and he's going to have, you know, go through the whole thing with no regard to who he is. If there's, you know, a, if there's um, somebody coming out of a mall carrying a bag and she's not, she's got stuff in it that hasn't been paid for, she's going to get arrested for shoplifting. And then she can have her day in court. No matter what the crime is, if it's against the law, we will enforce it. That at least is the heart of being a chief of police, is it not? I mean, there's all this ancillary stuff like you have um, you have um, outreach or, or programs and you've got uh, community policing and there's all kinds of different ancillary things that all go on that, that it were, are within his orbit. I get that. I know that. But at the same time, at its heart, the whole point of being the chief of police is to make sure the laws as written are enforced. Isn't it? So when you when you put up an illegal drug, an illegal injection site, and you're breaking the law, and you know what? City of Ottawa has a habit of this. This isn't the first time something like this. Remember Bob Chiarelli's camp, campground out in front on City Hall? Fifth, I think it was 56 days that lasted. They should have moved in. There's no supposed to be no overnight camping in city on city property. And yet, what happened? 52 days before finally it was ended. Well, why did it last even one? If they want to have a sit-in and protest... All right, you've got till 5 o'clock. At 5.01, we start moving bodies. And if you don't like it, tough. In the back of the van, you can explain to the judge because you're not supposed to be here. Or give them overnight. Say, if you're here at 8 o'clock in the morning and we come back, we are going to clean this place out. Give them a deadline. And then make sure you back it up because you'd only have to do that once or twice. And then the protesters will know that, look... Last time we did that, we got thrown in the clink. You know, they don't put up with that crap. They don't do that. As a matter of fact, there's a city out in out west. Was it Seattle? They hit the wall. There was a protest outside city city council chambers, and city councilors called the police, said, deal with it. We're done. We're, we're not putting up with any more of this right to protest garbage. It's been going on for weeks, and we want it ended. And they, they got into a bit of a scuffle, and the cops came in, Closed it down, arrested a bunch of people. Voila, problem solved. See, when you enforce the law, 
one of the reasons you enforce the law, besides the fact that it's how we maintain or it's it's to let people know. Remember I talked about consequences earlier? Well, guess what? If you go onto public property and you break the law, there's a very good chance you're going to get arrested, or at least there should be. And this is the part that Chief Bordalo doesn't seem to understand. One of the most ridiculous things I ever I remember about uh, Chief Bordalo was the Red Heel campaign. He had all the senior staff walking around in red high heel pumps. I can't even remember why, but it was absolutely asinine. You're the chief of police. And you, you want to talk about the gay pride, whole, the whole gay pride thing? One day he's going to march in uniform, the next day he's not. That's a man of decision and action? No matter how you feel about the pride parade, that was completely botched. That was completely botched. They did not do that very well at all. Now, I'm, I'm working on, um, I'm, I think, I shouldn't do this. I have a city councilor who's agreed to come on, and we're going to be talking about, I won't tell you who it is yet, because I haven't confirmed it. Um, I just have to arrange the schedule. Uh, one of the things I want to do is bring on a city councilor to talk about um, the idea of um, Google finding a North American home, finding a home in Canada, and the role the mayor's had in that. And how well it's going. <laughs> you know, the other thing, actually, um, I would also like an update on is what's going on with the tunnel, with the choo-choo train underground, how that is going. Because I think there's probably a lot going on down there that we haven't heard anything about yet, and I'd love to get an update on it. So for all of those out there who think I'm not paying attention to local issues, and I'll tell you why, for the most part, uh, I think it was Kevin was was mentioning that, that he didn't think I was paying enough attention to local issues. When you go online and you do a, a show like this, um, when you have no idea where people are listening from, and you have to, in my mind, you have to go provincial, federal, and international, not always in that order, but because if you have somebody listening from in, in from Moose Jaw, what do they care about what, are, what the city of Ottawa's chief of police is doing? You know, on the other hand... Um, if the story has relevance uh, to people in Moose Jaw, like an example of what you don't do when you're in government, uh, or times when they do do things right. Believe it or not, municipal leaders sometimes get it right. I can't think of any examples at the moment. Like the whole, remember the, here's, here's now, better late than never, but in the last month, maybe in the last three weeks, they came along, yes, Stephanie, they can be, but, She's, Stephanie's saying sometimes local issues can be boring. Yeah, that's true, but so is taking out the trash, but you got to do it anyway, right? <laughs> but local municipal politics actually matter more. Of all the levels of government, local, local government is the most important. It's the one that impacts your life the most on a daily basis. Because if the government raises taxes, that might not take effect for a year and a half. Okay, but if the municipality changes your garbage pickup day or cuts your garbage pickup days in half, like going from every one once a week to every other week, isn't that right, Green Bin, Ottawa? Um, it has an immediate impact. So that's why it's probably a good idea I should spend a little more time on local issues uh, than I have been. And I like some of the bigger issues too, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, when you look, <laughs> you look at this stuff, the um, 
the, talking about the, when they do actually get things right, the city of Ottawa has finally decided that you can't go into their libraries and watch pornography anymore. Now, you know something? I would think that that's common sense. Everybody knows that 80% of the, of the in, um, searches on the Internet are either for porn or gambling. And the other 20% make up all the rest. So if that is something that you want to do, there's nobody can stop you. But I would like to think that common decency would prevent you from doing it in a place where the public can see you. Like, look, with computer technology today, go home. You know, you don't have to watch that stuff in a public library because there could be an eight-year-old walking by behind you when you're sitting in your little cubby hole watching whatever it is you're watching and all of a sudden tugging on mommy's sleeve, go, mommy, what's that? What are those two people doing? And then mommy turns bright red when she sees what you're watching and has to, you know, avert little Johnny's eyes because he's not ready for that information yet. And you know how they used to defend it? It was under the argument, oh, well, that's, was it free expression or some, some kind of loopy left-wing argument? But they finally put an end to it. A woman complained the same, under the same circumstances that I'm talking about and uh, said, this is a completely un inappropriate. And she's absolutely right. But it took me years to do that. Common decency, you would think. You wouldn't need a policy. It's like having a code of ethics, right? A code of ethics in a municipal setting. You want a code of ethics? Put the Ten Commandments up. That's a code of ethics. Don't steal, okay? Don't lie. Don't sleep with your buddy's wife. Don't steal his property, you know? <laughs> what... <laughs> It's the best code of, code of ethics ever written, even if you're not Christian or Jewish. Don't do those things, and you'll be fine. Oh, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, Stephanie was telling me the, li the librarian's comment was, well, what you deem in inappropriate might not be what other people find inappropriate. No, there's things called public standards, right? Um that need to be applied. If anybody, you know, it's funny that she would quote that, but if somebody were to walk around with a pro-life sandwich sign on, just walking down Queen Street, walking down Slater Street, you pick the street, okay, or Smallville anywhere, and saying abortion is murder uh, or something like that, expressing their point of view, do you think the librarian would say the same thing? No. There, that the individual would be catcalled and ridiculed and, and all kinds of nonsense. And I know it's true because it happens. It's, it's, it's not unique. It's not a one-time thing. There's a grandmother in jail for something as terrible as kneeling down across the street from the mortuary and praying the rosary. And the police came and arrested her and put her in jail for it. So... Yeah, public standards need to come up a little bit. And I think at the very first place we should start is saying you can't watch that crap in a public library. You want to do that, you go home. You do it in your the confines of your own home. 
you can, for all I care, you can walk around naked backwards with a banana peel on your head. If that's what floats your boat, go for it. I don't care, but don't do it in public. And, you know, if we applied that standard, there'd be a lot of things that people wouldn't do in public, and we'd be a lot better off for it. I'm going to take a break, and we'll be back with more right after this. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches. But fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspect distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. All right. I was reading the paper today, and there's that horrific story out of Aaron Pryor. And this is a question, I suppose, you could call it local, you could call it, I think this applies in every corner of the country. And uh, a grandmother was killed in a head-on collision with a 22-year-old man who was fleeing the police. <sighs> horrific, no doubt. I mean, the kid survived, but the grandmother didn't. And, you know... She wasn't a whole lot older than I am or my wife is. And you think about it, and the question becomes, at what point? If you were going back to the chief of police, let's say, because this, I believe, was a chase that was engaged by the OPP. I could be wrong, but some police agency. So you're the head of that police agency, and you have to set policy. What policy do you think is appropriate? Um, chase them down at all costs, you know? Use whatever whatever tactics you have to to, to uh, arrest that individual because they have uh, they're, they're threatening public safety, or after a certain let's say if you can't catch him in twenty minutes uh, or in ten minutes or whatever whatever it is, or if you get their license plate, then you back off. Because here's the problem. Now, in this case, it was, we well, I'm not even sure yet if they know why the kid was fleeing. But let's say somebody has just robbed a bank or committed a violent crime, and you know they're armed, and they're fleeing police. If you back off, let's say you get their license plate. First of all, you don't even know if it's his. You might have stolen the car. Secondly, if you back off and let them go. Like, remember the story out of Wilno two years ago where the guy went around and shot three people, three women? Well, the police chased him down and hunted him down and, and caught him. But if they were in, a, in the middle of a high-speed chase with this guy and said, okay, you know, this is crossing the line. We're going to let him go and we'll get him later. What if he just shot two or three more? You see, this is the balancing act you have to have. And this is where you get, end up in a situation where, as a police officer, man, you don't want to be put in that position. Because if you chase him till you catch him, Things like what happened at Ironprior can happen. An innocent bystander gets w taken out uh, because this kid is trying to get away from you. On the other hand, if you let them go, maybe they'll do more damage anyway. 
So where's the balance? And I don't have an answer for that. I just think there's, it's tragic. Do we just write it off and say that's life? You know, it's one of the risks of being in, a, in our society is, you know, when bad people do things, they're going to get chased down by police. And sometimes innocent people pay the biggest price. Are we willing to live that way? Is it, do we say, you know, no, we're, we're going to have the police. And it would be a, a standard they're not going to broadcast because let's say, I know that uh, um, EMT vehicles, ambulances and so on, they can, they can fly down the highway with their lights on, but there's a certain speed limit they can't go over. You know, they can do like 10 or 12 miles an hour above the speed limit in order to get you to the hospital faster, right? If you're having a heart attack in the back or something like that in the ambulance. Uh, so would you impose something like that on the police? Say, look, you know, uh, 85 miles an hour, that's it. You go above that. If, the, if you get above that, you have to back off. Because now you're, you're playing that game again. You know, you're playing that game where it says, what do I do? How do I go about dealing with this? Because that story was really tragic. But the question becomes when, when all the emotion dies down, and I really feel for the family, you know, it, it really is a heavy blow to take. So I'm not trying to trivialize that at all. I'm looking at it from, um, and when I say disinterested third party, I don't mean that I, I'm not compassionate. I'm just trying to separate myself from the emotion of the situation, Okay. But when you look at it from that point of view, saying, okay, this happened, how do we prevent something like this happening in the future? And let's look at this from a logical, reasonable point of view. Where do you draw that line? How do you decide? What are the mitigating factors? Does time of day, traffic, weather, um, you know, uh, if you know anything about the perp at all, how do you blend them in? Is that a... a Maybe it's a it's a case-by-case uh, -case basis, okay? Maybe if somebody's fleeing and you don't know why, you might back off. But if somebody's just left, uh, like I go back to the story out of Wilno, okay, there's been two or three murders and you know this guy's out there and you, f you catch up with him, you say, you know what, get the spike belts out, we're going to do whatever we have to to stop this guy because he's already killed three people and we don't want him killing anymore. Maybe in that case, you say, okay, all bets are off. You go get them and do whatever you have to do to stop them. Because he's, you know, there, there's, he's already killed three times. So maybe you approach it that way. That actually, the more that I think about it, that might make sense. That might, and maybe, maybe that's what they do. I don't know, but it's a, a horrific story. And that stretch of highway is such a blood-soaked piece of highway everywhere, every way. The, the the one of the biggest papers in the Ottawa Valley, uh, going out west there up the valley, is the Eagle Leader, and I buy that probably two three times a month, um, and almost invariably there's an accident or a wreck of some kind on that highway where somebody's either been seriously injured or killed, and it really is tragic because there's no excuse for that. When I start thinking about the amount of money that the government has wasted on things like, oh, I don't know, uh, wind turbines, solar farms, uh, big plastic ducks, although that was federal, uh, you know, 5.5 million on ad campaigns, uh, all that kind of stuff. How many miles of highway 
you know, could you expand it from two lanes to four with? You could have gone a long way. And yet here we are. The Trans-Canada Highway, once you get beyond almost, your, it's almost to Arnprior, it's almost to Renfrew now. But beyond that, as far as I know, if you stay on the, on the, um, on the TCH and head west, uh, you don't pick up a four-laner again until you get to Manitoba. Now, maybe I'm wrong because I'm not that familiar with the western half of the province, but I do know that for a very long way, it's still two lanes. And this is 2017. So, I don't know. Just another one of those little things that bothers me. All right, let me dip back into the storyboard here. About that $5 million. Okay. You know, this if this story does not show you how completely jaded, not jaded, but uncaring and callous the Ontario Liberal Party is, then I frankly don't know what to tell you. I don't know what will make you uh, get your head around this. Okay, the headline, Liberals spend $5.5 million on ads touting hydro bill cuts. Yeah, okay. And then this has been all over the media. I'm not the first one to do this, but I just, this needs to be pounded on. This question needs to be really hammered home. Ontario's Liberal government has, earned, has earmarked $5.5 million to advertise cuts to hydro bills as the opposition says, use public money to make Liberal Party make the Liberal Party look good. You know what's terrifying is there's people this is going to work on. I cannot for the life of me figure out why anyone would fall for anything that these, these clowns do. I really, really don't know why. Why would you listen to anything that comes out of Queen's Park, out of Kathleen with, with her history, and Dalton McGinty's before her. Why would you take anything they have to say and go, hmm, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, maybe I'll vote for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea, yeah. That sounds a lot better than, than uh, oh, I don't know, digging a post hole. But no, they, you know, it's just kind of nonsense. Remember, in this case, it's, it's tragic that this this particular party is now only five points. Now, there is another reason for this. They're five points behind um, the Conservative Party, okay, under Patrick Brown. I think the reason they're five points behind the Conservatives isn't because the, li the Liberals are so good. It's because there's virtually no difference between the PC Party of Ontario and the Liberal Party of Ontario. That's why there's a few points, because people are going... Well, if this is what I got to choose between, then why would I want to change horses? I already got this. There's no difference between Patrick Brown and Kathleen Wynne. And I've been having this argument on Facebook. I know Lowell doesn't, for, he just keeps hammering away, we got to get rid of Wynne, we got to get rid of Wynne, we got to get rid of Wynne. And I agree with him, we do. But we shouldn't replace her with a copycat with a carbon copy. What's the point? Now, I've, I have asked him and his supporters dozens of times to explain to me what the difference is. Why would you vote for Patrick Brown if he has the same political outlook as Kathleen Wynne does? Why would you vote for them? Well, we've got to get rid of Kathleen Wynne is not a good enough answer. You know, that's like saying i gotta, I got to get rid of this rust bucket car I'm driving for that rust bucket. Well, Why? At least with this rust bucket, you know where all the flaws are. Like, I got a tractor at home, 
that unless you know exactly where to kiss it, when to curse it, and how hard to kick it, it won't start for you. Anybody else would call it a piece of junk. Me, I love the thing. Why? Because it's the only one I got. And I know how to start it. And you don't just climb on and turn a key, believe me. And if you let it sit for two or three days, then the system, the fuel system airlocks, and you've got to prime it. So I know the tractor, in other words. All right? I can live with that, even though it's a long way from perfect. It's old. It's tired. But guess what? It's mine. So when I go out there in the yard, I grumble at it and I complain about it, but I use it. And, it's, and when you translate that into, into um, politics, Kathleen Wynne, whether you like it or not, is your old tractor. And you know what she's going to do, whatever is in her best interest, and screw the province. So why would you trade it in on another that doesn't improve the situation? You're going sideways. And that's the difference. That's the whole point is you have a situation where you've got people out there who will vote for a change without actually understanding that they're not going to get one. They want one. So do I. Absolutely I do. But that doesn't mean for a second I'm just going to put the blind put the blindfold on, close my eyes, hold my nose, and hold my breath, and vote for somebody that represents Patrick Brown. And that, believe me, remember something. I didn't leave, and you didn't leave the Conservative Party of Ontario. They left us. They left us. That's the part that people have to remember. I didn't ask for carbon tax. I didn't ask for anybody to support a carbon tax. I didn't ask to keep same-sex education in school. Or not same-sex education, but the sex ed curriculum in school. I didn't ask for the nonsense that surrounds the environmental policies that this government's put forward that Patrick Brown hasn't said anything about. I did not, I will not support a party that does not want to deal with hydro. So, since he's not going to do any of these things, what in God's name would you vote for him for? No matter what color banner he flies. Because the flag over which, you know, the, the color of the flag only matters if the people underneath share the values that flag represents. And in this case, there ain't a snowball's chance that Patrick Brown will ever come near this stuff. We don't need any more centrist, leftist, progressive policies. And it doesn't matter what 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 political party carries that banner? If they're carrying that banner, they're not getting my support. And that's why this kind of stuff just is enough to make you pull your hair out. It really is. And it's tragic, but that's the way it is. So when I when I go over, and don't get me wrong, I have a ton of respect for Lowell Green. Okay, I really do. Uh, he's been a mentor to me for a lot of years. I have, you know, there's there's no doubt about his list of accomplishments and his resume. But for some reason, he just cannot understand that voting for Patrick Wynn is not a vote for change. <laughs> I just realized what I said. Voting for Patrick Wynn. <laughs> you know, there may be a slogan in there somewhere. <laughs> Don't vote for Patrick Wynn. You won't get anywhere. Hmm. I'm going to work on that. You know what we should do? We should have some fun with bumper stickers. Have people post bumper stickers, political bumper bumper stickers about 
the Liberals, the PC. If you want to throw the NDP into the hopper, fine. Who cares? Is anybody paying attention to the NDP race for leadership? Can can you name one of the three or four that are in the race? I can't. I couldn't care less who leads the federal PC par- NDP party. Doesn't matter to me. I just I'd never vote for them anyway. Just. It's funny how much attention this isn't getting. The only people paying attention to this are NDP supporters, of course, and a few outlets in the mainstream media. I never, never, never hear anybody talking about it on the street. I never. It never comes up on Facebook. It never comes up in conversation amongst friends. Never. It makes about it. It makes about as enlightening a conversation. It would make about as lightning a conversation as talking about the le- the uh, leadership contest for the Green Party. Oh wait, there isn't one. <laughs> That's about how interesting it is. All I know is one guy. I think his name is Singh or something like that. There's some controversy swirling around him, but that's for the left. That's nothing new. They don't care. Patrick Win. Patrick Win. We all lose. <laughs> hey, now there, Doug. There's a good one. Patrick Win. We all lose. <laughs> I like that one. All right, yeah. Oh, God. I'll leave you guys with uh, a little bit of time. Uh, We'll pick that theme up again next week. And uh, I'm going to post on Facebook as soon as I get confirmation for that city councillor. I don't know if he'll be in studio or if if they'll be um, on the phone. I prefer them in studio just because it gives me a chance to do face-to-face. But we can do it over the phone, too. And uh, we'll talk about... uh, all thing, all those things going on down in City Hall. So if you know people out there who are interested in local politics, that would be the show to listen to. And I do too. I really do. I just, it, I, I think that uh, when you do a show like this, you have to be a little more broad-based. Uh, speaking of broad, broad-based, uh, I don't know how I made this connection, but uh, going back to national politics, you know what I'm fed up with? I am fed up to death of people of, of the military taking it on the chin because. Our political masters cannot get military procurement right. There's a story about a trade war uh, in NAFTA uh, where um, uh, the U.S. just slapped a 219 percent. 19, here it is. The U.S. plans to impose an import tariff of 219.6 percent, which would effectively triple the cost of Bombardier jets. I think there's going to be a lot of angry people. In a lot of countries, said uh, said the uh, Mr. Baskin. I jumped in the middle, so I'm not sure who he is. Anyway, the, the point is, 220% duty uh, kills that kills that deal, and it's a multi-billion-dollar deal. But because of that, because it's Boeing, the government said, "Well, I don't know if we want to do business with with a company like Boeing if uh, if that's going to be the way things go," because Boeing filed the complaint. Well, guess what Boeing is in negotiations for Canada with? Yeah, the Super Hornet. So we've got 40-year-old F-18s that are out of date, worn out, tired. They're still a great-looking airplane, but so is the Spitfire, and I don't know if I'd fly that into combat. But the point is that we need airplanes, and we need them now. We needed them 30 years ago, 25 anyway. And yet, there goes another four or five years before we even think about replacing these things. And it's another case where the, the military military concerns come in 
last again, and I just grow weary of it. Let me uh, jump in uh, uh, here in the in the article, starting under the heading "Interim Fighter Jet Problem." But the military could also be left in a long-term lurch. The Liberals insisted they needed to buy 18 Super Hornets on an urgent basis to cover a gap in the country's ability to field fighters for NORAD and NATO at the same time. The next best option would be to use to buy used FA-18s from another country until a competition to replace the entire fleet of, Cana of Canadian Hornets is launched. During the election campaign, however, Trudeau ruled out buying the Lockheed F-35 stealth fighter and the bruising political rhetoric surrounding Boeing suggests the company has also been ruled out. Therefore, uh, once again, the military's taking it on the chin. They need these things. Um, they, need, they need this hardware to be able to do their job. And what is their job? Well... In the case of the Air Force, the, the role traditionally the role of an Air Force falls into three categories. First of all is air is um, sovereignty to protect our airspace so that if somebody comes you know sneaking around the back door, we can send send up a couple of fighters and deal with the, the interlopers and guide them back to where they came from, or if they get aggressive, then you know take whatever action is required. Uh, secondly is to support and meet our commitment in NATO. So that when things like uh, the Crimea happen or we have cases, oh, I don't know, like fighting ISIS uh, come up, we have the, the ability to send a squadron of uh, fighters and make our, um, make our um, contribution that way. And we also need to support our troops on the ground with close air support. I, should, I said three, I should have said four. The fourth one, of course, is to provide what we used to call in the Navy the Hell Air Debt or the Helicopter Air Department. Uh, for in now we're finally getting the cyclone helicopters uh, to replace the old Sea Kings on our frigates so they can be fully operational and deal with their primary role, which is underwater warfare or anti-submarine warfare using the helicopters. So that traditionally, and then you get into heavy lift transport and all that stuff, but that's all ancillary stuff designed to support the pointy end of the sword. Okay, there's no point in having the the handle of the sword if you've got no point on the end. You end up with a claymore. It doesn't look very good. But anyway, so that's that's what drives me crazy is in our country, in its history, we have never been able to... Ooh, Patrick Wynn joined at the waist. W-A-S-T. That's a good one, Doug. Um, actually, I like that one. <laughs> I guess it just drives me crazy because the people in the military deserve... The very best that we can, and government, and this is not just a liberal problem. I refuse to lay the, the blame strictly at the feet of the liberals. They bear a big share of it, but the conservatives have never done it right either. Don't forget who it was that canceled the Avro Arrow. You know, Harper talked a lot about um, rebuilding the military and what actually got done. What's different now? It's actually worse now that I think about it. When you take and you take the the naval equivalent, you pull in the naval component as well. We're in we're in worse shape now than we were the day he took office. So he's not free of criticism either. So it's not just a liberal thing. It's not just a conservative thing. It's a Canada thing. We cannot do procurement right, and I don't know why. And when I think about the guys in uniform out there slugging it out every day, trying to do their best, and they do remarkable things with what we give them, but we shortchange them on a regular basis. And I just makes me crazy. One person said, well, we ought to buy the Eurofighter. Well, 
maybe, but that process isn't exactly fast either. And if I remember right, that's a single-engine fighter, and when you're flying over thousands of square miles of frozen tundra, having one engine is not something you really want to do. You want the reliability and redundancy of two. That's why the F-18 has two. Anyway, I'm digressing into a topic I could spend hours on and most people aren't interested in. All right, we'll take another little break. When we come back, we'll wrap it. We'll wrap things up. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. EMM Group is the authorized Integraspec distributor for the greater Ottawa area, providing technically advanced insulated concrete farms. The design virtually eliminates waste while providing the ultimate energy-efficient, quiet homes and structures. With over 40 years' experience in the concrete industry, EMM offers the best product to homeowners and contractors. Canadian-made Integraspec is now being used worldwide. More info can be found at Integraspec.com. Don't consider building any other way. Call your ICF specialist, 613-835-2600. All right. Now, I want to share with you, I believe I got this from my son's uh, Facebook page. And Jordan is an interesting young man. He loves um, Dr. Peterson, Jordan B. Peterson, the, the guy out of the uh, University of Toronto, who was under all that attack for free, free speech last year, or earlier this summer, I think is more accurate. And I've been watching a lot of his videos online, too, and I'll tell you what, um, the man is brilliant. He really is. And he also has, is very widely read. And he posts a quote here by Thomas Sowell. Now, if you don't know who Thomas Sowell is, he's an American political commentator, a black man, who's been in the game for decades and is probably one of the brightest political analysts that the Americans have ever had. And he's also conservative. And that drives the left nuts. It's kind of like having a francophone resist... Uh, bilingual laws because he thinks it's unfair. And I happen to know one of those guys. And it just drives the, the opposition crazy. Okay, so here's the quote that um, Peterson put up from Thomas Sowell. The Marxist exploitation theory led to communist societies in the Soviet Union and in China under Mao, each of which had deaths by starvation alone that were more numerous than the deaths in the Holocaust. Here, too, speculations for which intellectuals paid no price ended up imposing ghastly costs on millions of others. Now, I'm not going to say that we're Russia or that we're China, you know, Russia under Stalin or China under Mao, but we are very socialistic, and socialism bears with it a very heavy cost, and that's what uh, Thomas Sowell is um, referring to here, because what most people uh, don't understand is that socialism is something that can only... That, that is a great evil. It is not something we should be embracing. It is something we should be resisting and fighting at every turn. And I had a, um, I can't remember where I saw it, but a lot of times you get people ask you the question, well, what, communism? Uh, that's not the same thing as socialism. That's, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. And usually those are from people who either have a vested interest in throwing a smokescreen 
so that people don't make that link or they just don't know any better. And the analogy I heard that really nails it is one that says, um, communi- if communism is Coke, then socialism is its diet version. So communism is Coke and socialism is Diet Coke. So, yeah, one's not exactly the same as the other, but they're very, I've always called them kissing cousins. And that's why you get guys like Hitler and, and Mussolini and uh, Mao and, and um, uh, Stalin. They're all, from, they're all from that cloth. They're all from the left-hand side of the political spectrum. Now, a lot of progressives hate that. And they will go pulling themselves through knotholes and, you know, just going crazy trying to tell you you're wrong and that to take Hitler as an example. Oh, no, he was a right-wing extremist. No, he wasn't. Everything he believed in is the same kind of policies. Everything that he wanted, government control, he wanted all kinds of things that the right simply is, is, uh, is anathema to anybody who's on the right. Okay? He imposed gun laws. He imposed all kinds of things on people that a free and open democratic society, the kind that the right w- are interested in, smaller government, lower taxes, greater personal freedom, all these things, are completely opposed to everything that people like him um, want to see imposed on society. So I always get a laugh out of it when somebody tries to call Hitler a right-wing, ex- you know, a neo. That's why they use the phrase neo-con. They're trying to make you make the mental connection subtly that to be a conservative is to tie yourselves to the Nazis of the 1930s. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. And yet it keeps getting regurgitated, regurgitated, regurgitated. And as Joseph Goebbels once said, tell a lie long enough and people it becomes a truth. Right? Well, that's why people like you and I have to resist that. And point out to people over and over again that, you know what, that ain't exactly the way it is. Okay. Uh, let's see. So I look. For, I didn't get a chance to get into the story of the status of women. The, the, the liberals in the NDP had a cow when Rachel Harder, a conservative MP, was selected by the, uh, was offered up as a chair for the status of women, which is a completely useless council. Um, I see no value in it at all if they... If people only cared about merit, then you wouldn't need a council for the status of women. Uh, you would simply need uh, people qualified for jobs, regardless of their gender, based on their merit, and none of it would matter. You know, you just put a blindfold on, or you'd look at a numbered resume, and whichever resume actually makes uh, has the best qualifications as who you hired, and then later on you'd find out whether it was male or female, black, white, green, yellow, or purple. Right? Doesn't matter. Because merit won the day. That's why these kind of councils really are a waste of time and taxpayers' money. But since we have one, they offered up a conservative uh, who didn't speak exactly along the lines of the of the narrative, and uh, all the little children up there and uh, up there on the hill had a freaking cow. So I didn't get a chance to get into that, and I didn't get into the chance to talk about the 22-year-old who stopped the shooting down in Tennessee. Uh, because he carried a concealed weapon and was able to take out the uh, the guy doing the shooting. He did shoot, uh, the bad guy did shoot one person and injured a few more, but uh, there was a struggle, and the 20-year-old kid who did the saving um, uh, put, an end, put, a, put a stop to him. Anyway, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I think I've been there. Anyway, 
I don't remember it, so it doesn't matter. All right, that wraps it up for me tonight. Thank you all very much for participating in any fashion at all. It's been great to have you out there. And I certainly um, uh, look forward to next week's show. Uh, once I get a confirmation of the counselor's uh, presence, I will post it on Facebook so you have plenty of time. I'll try and get that arranged tomorrow. Or f well, tomorrow is Friday. Um, as soon as I can, with we'll give you a little bit of lead time, but I have to confirm that first. So I normally don't even mention that much, but I do know that there are people out there like uh, uh, Kevin who are interested in, in local politics, and he's right. I, I do have to service that a little bit better. So we'll try to get that done and... Uh, uh, bring on a uh, voice from the local level and let them bring us up to speed on the nefarious things going on down at City Hall. Okay, with that said, ubiqueritas et amor, Deus ibi est. Good evening, God bless, don't let anything disturb your peace, and may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Of all the money that e'er I had, I spent it in good company. And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wit To memory now I can so fill to me the parting glass Good night and joy be to you all So fill to me the parting glass And drink a health whatever Then gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I had They're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me
Show.